were created at a time when corporations would come in and do their harvest and take the profits and take them away. Communities were being pitted against each other that they had to make a decision between jobs and the environment. And so Redwood Forest Foundation was really created to create that tension within the board of those perspectives so that the community itself, because it has a long-term interest in that land, can find the right balance of environment, equity, and the economy in how it manages that forest in the long-term. Welcome to another episode of Fuerza Inside the Mind of the Ridden Athlete. I'm your host, Mig, a.k.a. Grasshopper, a.k.a. Chapeline. Today's guests uh, are not famous cyclists, are not influencers, are not legends in the sport of cycling. They're legends in their own right. We'll be speaking with Linwood Gill, the head forester at Redwood Forest Foundation, and you saw Redwoods, along with Kathy Moxon and Richard Ginger. October 1st will be the fourth annual Grasshopper USOL Lost Coast Hopper, which is absolutely the highlight of my year. Folks often ask me, what is my favorite grasshopper? And I honestly tell them, whichever one is next. But this one is special in that we are working in partnership with folks that are doing an incredible job of stewarding the land. The mission statement uh, of the Redwood Forest Foundation is truly honorable to acquire, protect, restore, and manage RFF forest lands and other related resources in the Redwood region for the long-term benefit of the community located here. The vision to establish community-based forests that provide both critical habitat for increased biodiversity and improve regional economic vitality. What does this have to do with cycling, you say? Everything. Remember, uh, I'm a reluctant event promoter and a willing curator of epic adventures and a host. Um, that is what this is all about. So sit back and enjoy the conversation. We will be delving into the history of Riffy, uh, the background and backstory of timber harvest in Mendocino and Southern Humboldt, and some of the work that has been going on for decades to restore stream habitat, providing opportunities for reintroduction of coho salmon, um, working on fire repression, suppression, prevention, and uh, things related to that. And don't forget, how is this connected to recreate? We like to recreate in the woods. What is in the woods? Roads and trails. There's also trees, right? So anyways, I hope you guys enjoy this chat. Um, those who will be joining us will have Richard and Linwood uh, at our fireside chat, which is one of the best parts of the weekend. Um, so here we go. Okay, welcome to another episode of Inside the Mind of the Ridden Athlete. Today we have a very unique guest. These are not cycling celebrities nor superstar athletes, yet superstars in their own right in working with and running and uh, managing the Redwood Forest Foundation and the USAL Redwoods. Uh, I want, would like to introduce you guys to Linwood Gill and Kathy Moxon. Thank you for joining us. Pl pleasure to be here. 
Glad to be here. So this will be our fourth year collaborating together uh, on an event out at the USAL Beach and USAL Redwoods uh, uh, on the southernmost por portion of the Lost Coast. It's a very unique cycling event, and it's really kind of a dream event for me because not only is it a great ride, but it's a connection to uh, the local community, to the local land. So I appreciate uh, the opportunity to, to work together with you guys again. Uh, Linwood, I'm hoping that we, you could start out. Um, I was reading about what to me is uh, a unique role, it seems, for you as the head forester, where you, you talk about the community partnerships. And normally in timber companies, you'd be talking about maybe your assets and, and your board feed or whatnot. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, the uniqueness as you see it uh, with Redwood Forest Foundations and, and, you, and you saw Redwoods? Well, I think the the biggest factor is, you know, how Redwood Forest Foundation got formed and how it originated. And it was always considered to be a community forest. It was, uh, it's not technically owned by community members, but it's owned by a nonprofit, which is managing it for the benefit of the community. And that goes to, you know, the economic benefit, the ecological benefit, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, also, at, at some point in the future, being able to have more financial returns to the community, such as the, uh, you know, hospital districts, fire districts, things along those lines. And the important part for me and, and my role here is to uh, engage with local contractors, uh, folks that live uh, near the forest, uh, to make sure we are uh, giving them an opportunity to to work on the land uh, and give them a chance to um, you know have uh, have have work that they don't have to travel hours away. I mean we're pretty we're pretty remote and most people who live in the you know Leggett and Piercy area there's not a lot of jobs and having work uh, close by is is critical. Um, I, I think one of the for folks that may have attended our annual meeting last year, I did an interview with uh, Kelly Payne and Gina Payne up at uh, KP Custom Milling. And that's just like the classic example of, of what we mean. Uh, they have a small uh, sawmill set up and we're selling them uh, our redwood logs. And to be able to supply them the raw materials for them to uh, then make it into a product that they turn around and not only sell to the Bay Area, but also to the local community. And I know they did some some work for the, I think it was uh, uh, the Redway Fire Department, I think, or Community Center or something like that. I'd draw a blank. So don't, don't quote me on that one. And for people who live in this area, I understand that they opened up a uh, for sale to the public uh, on San Rose Avenue, which I live in Sebastopol and San Rosa, so people can buy a product from there. So this focus on on improving the regional economic and vitality is huge and keeping those resources and assets and creating jobs that are long term. And I think that's one of the visions that's so admirable about the Redwoods Force Foundations. Uh, it's not owned by investors from... Georgia or South Carolina that owns this piece of land. And I know that is uh, part of the legacy and history of, of Northern 
California. And Kathy, can you describe to us like what what is your role? And you, I know you have a pretty diverse uh, board. There's a lot of folks involved in the nonprofit side, and you know that meshes and overlaps with the um, timber production. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know. Linwood talked a little bit about the history, and I think one of the important things about the history is we were created at a time when corporations would come in and do their harvest and take the profits and take them away. And we were felt like we were being communities were being pitted against each other, that they had to make a decision between jobs and the environment. And so Redwood Forest Foundation was really created to create that tension within the board of those perspectives so that the community itself, because it has a long-term interest in that land, can find the right balance of uh, environment, equity, and the uh, economy in how it manages that forest in the long term. So the board has, over time, reflected that uh, the tension of environmentalists and loggers and other community members who are all uh, putting in their own perspectives to find solutions And I've been on the board for probably 20 years. I was on the board and was the board chair and then stepped into the interim executive director position when we were changing staff um, in order for us to be able to do a search for a new uh, CEO. So I've been in that position for about a year. Um, As everybody knows, the workforce situation is a little tough right now. We want the right person with the right vision for this forest and this community and the relationship between those two. So we've been taking it slow when it comes to finding the right person. So let's let's put the saw Redwoods on the map a little bit for folks because we all know right where it is. And um, I know it's 50,000 acres. I know it goes from the county road near the Pacific, the Usall Road, all the way to the Eel River from Highway 1 over to Piercy. Uh, 50,000 acres, double the size of San Francisco. But that's that's flat. If you if you flattened it out, maybe it's the size of Nevada. I don't know. It's 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 enormous. But help us understand a little bit where this is in connection to other forests um, around that and other and the watersheds. Well, it's if you kind of draw a line between the town of uh, Leggett over to the coast, and then everything between the uh, Highway 101. Uh, over to, as you said, the Usall County Road or that first ridge in from the ocean and all the way up almost to the Humboldt County line. I mean, that's kind of a, you know, a gross simplification of where it's at. But we have two two major watersheds that we are working in. One is the Usall Creek watershed, which flows right to the Pacific Ocean. And that's where the uh, Usall campground is and where the headquarters for the bike ride is. And that's about a third of our property that drains in that direction. And then the rest is made up of a series of uh, uh, smaller smaller creeks and a couple of fairly good-sized drainages that go to the south fork of the Eel River. Uh, Indian Creek, uh, Anderson Creek are, are two very, very significant coho uh, salmon streams, and uh, they are on our uh, on our property as well as oh another seven or eight smaller drainages that uh, go right into the south fork of the eel. And for those who don't know, again, once you get from you know Leggett and are driving north on 101, 
off to the left or the right, depending on which side, of the, which bridge you just crossed, is the is the South Fork Eel. And so what's the delineation for folks that know that live down in the Bay Area where the Russian River flows south and the Eel River f- flows north? Is that the summit in Willits? Uh, that is, that is correct. Everything, um, south of the Ridgewood grade where the, the big rock pit is up there on the top flows to the south and goes into the Russian river drainage. Everything to the north flows into, uh, the headwaters of the, uh, the Eel river. Uh, at that time, that case, it goes into the, the main stem of the Eel, I guess it would be, uh, and then the South Fork Eel kind of comes in a little bit further to the north. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I have a, two, a two-pronged question here, and there, there you could answer them in either order. Um, the first is, when you purchased this land, did you guys fully comprehend the amount of work that would have to be done when it came to the legacy roads that looked like varicose veins when I first saw that map? Um you know, and and the, what would be need to be done to be removing road and to working on stream restoration, because you're balancing that with time and resources for, um, you know, the timber and other things you're doing as well. And then the second piece is why why is it important to to do that to remove roads to work on streams to work on improving coho habitat in the salmon in the eel river. I mean, besides the fact that people like fish, why is the vitality of that so essential to to the um, to the forest, to the, to the, to the habitat for so many animals. Well, again, you got to go back to the history and how things were, were logged, um, you know, beginning of the, you know, turn of the century, maybe a little bit earlier. And I'm referring to the turner of the, you know, 19th, you know, the uh, 1900s, not Mm -hmm. 2000. Uh, You know, a lot of those areas, it was take the path of least resistance for the logs. And so they went down to the creeks and then out out along the creeks. And even after they got through, uh, you know, the earlier stages of, uh, you know, using, you know, animals, oxen to drag the logs, you know, they went in with the caterpillar tractors and they just followed that same mentality of, you know, building roads right next to the creek, in some cases in the creek. And a lot of times it's not the the main creek in the bottom that's the issues it's the side tributaries that are coming in because they just you know they just went up and down those things right and left and when they did that there was these these soils are are very erosive i mean we're we live we live i feel like i live out there sometimes uh the uh the property is right near the triple junction, you know, where the three major plates come together. So it's it's very seismically active, it's very fractured, and it's very erosive. And um, when you start adding on the significant amount of rain that we get in that area on these uh, exposed soils, on these creeks that have had you know dirt deposited in them uh, for decades. Um, you know, you've got significant sediment issues going down the creek, which impact the spawning habitat of, of the salmon. Not only that, but you start losing your infrastructure. You you can't keep going in, you know, every five years and rebuilding a road, you know, in the same place. I mean, that's the definition of insanity, right? You do the same thing over and over again and expect different expect a different result. Well, that's not going to happen. So uh, to answer that first part of your question, you know, 
did we know what we were getting into? Yes, I think we, I think we did. Uh, but it does take a, a lot of work. I mean, I've, um, you know, I spent quite a few years working with small landowners and we had the same issues. It was a smaller scale, but it was, you know, relocating our infrastructure, our road system away from these sensitive areas, the creeks, the crossings, and putting them up on ridges and changing our logging methods from tractor logging to cable logging, where we literally, you know, fly the logs, we elevate them off the ground and fly them through the air. So there's no, there's no uh, ground disturbance or at least minimal ground disturbance in, in doing that method. Um, so, yeah, we knew what the problems were. We kind of knew what we were getting into. Uh, but the scale is so large out there. And we've been very fortunate to work with, you know, organizations such as Trout Unlimited, Pacific Watershed Associates, uh, California Department of Fish and Wildlife through their Fisheries Restoration Program, FRGP, that have uh, supplied us with funding and expertise to make these fixes that that we so drastically need out there on the landscape. Um, that that leads me into another point, which which um, maybe maybe Kathy you could elaborate on this is is that you know it, it in your statement is that Ref, one of the things that Refi does is they reach out to the scientific community to improve their knowledge of restoring the forest to be more productive, fire resilient forest, timber resources, water quality, wildlife habitat. So this not that we know it and we're just going to do it our way because it's our land, but that you're looking out to experts because you, not everyone can be an expert of, of, of everything. And, and how has that benefited uh, the work that you're doing? Well, I, I do think that in reaching out and getting several different people's views on how to do things, we can find the best solutions for different areas and different problems that we have. Um, Right now, we're really doing an intensive outreach because we're thinking about this fire hazard and there's several different, I guess, schools of thought about what needs to happen and how that needs to happen in managing forests that have that are very dense and have a lot of ground fuels. And so we're, what we're hoping is that we can both uh, tap the expertise at Cal Poly Humboldt, at other reserves that have been um, that have been managing timber. Uh, we are in partnership with Native American communities um, to try to learn more about how what fire was used in the past to manage forests. Um, and so we're really committed to get a full range of perspectives and get a good conversation going about how we should be managing our forest. You know, you talked before about were we surprised about the roads. I don't, I don't think we were as surprised about the roads as we were about the condition of the inventory. So even though we knew some inventory numbers, how it actually lays out on the land was sort of a surprise that we really wouldn't know until we got out on the land and in the forest on a regular basis and started to build our own information. And so I think that that was probably a bigger surprise is how the wood laid out on the land and how dense it was. And then couple that with current climate change issues um, has created the need for us to accelerate our learning 
on new management techniques around fire resiliency in particular. Yeah, I, I remember in the couple of years I spent working with, with Joaquin on this and drive around and talking about, you know, it's once we, it, it's remarkable, you drive through a forest and it may be second, third generation, and it looks pretty nice to the untrained eye of how it looks. And then the educated person looks at the ladder fuel, looks at the, the single age of some of the trees. Uh, and it's such a complicated thing to manage forests and all the forests, except you get into the old growth, they've, they've been cut. So it's altered. So you can't go back to not managing it and trying to keep uneven ages so that you have, you know, a balance to that. And, and he was speaking to the fact that to count these, to do an inventory of, of your trees when you're walking literally up and down, uh, it, it, it seemed mind, mind bending to do to, to, to understand even what's what's out there. Um, and this leads us in if you could speak to this is a thing that is a piece of your portfolio, what you do, which is the carbon credit, which it is a term that's used a lot these days. And I think the way you guys are doing it is doing it is doing it well. But there are a lot of ways that large polluters buy their carbon credits so that it looks good on paper, but really it's for a project that already is going to be done anyways. Whereas with if people are investing with Riffy and the carbon credits, it's actually trees that are, are not being cut that would have likely been. Can you tell us a little bit about that program and, and how complicated uh, that is and, and, and the benefits of it? Well, I, I think to simplify our story, when we bought this property, we took on a large debt. And in order to pay back that debt, we, at the time, it was assumed that we would have to do industrial logging in order to pay back that debt. And we didn't want to do industrial logging. We immediately got certified by the Forest Stewardship Council for sustainable harvest, but we still needed to pay off that debt. And carbon allowed us to let our forests rest so we can afford to do more restoration forestry than industrial forestry, cutting trees and changing those age classes and managing those ladder fuels. We can do that instead of, um, of do large volumes of timber production um, in order to, uh, in, and still pay off our debt to the bank with our carbon proceeds. So for us, it really did change the management we would need to do on our property and has been a real benefit to this piece of land in its recovery after being logged over and just left to grow on its own after man touched it. <laughs> and, um, and so, and the, so the carbon sequestration process, a, a lot of people, I don't think really get the full effect of the cap and trade program in California. You know, it's a combination of what's called allowances and then offsets. We create offsets by uh, sequestering carbon on an annual basis. So they measure how much growth we have, they subtract what we harvest, and the difference we can sell. And, um, and at the state level, the number of allowances which must be purchased for 96 percent now, 92 or 96 percent of, of people's pollution has to be paid for by purchasing allowances. And every year, the number of allowances sold goes down. So they're squeezing those industrial uh, 
polluters to reduce over time. And so even though they can buy offsets, they cannot buy offsets for everything. They can only buy offsets for a small percentage of what they pollute. So really the state is squeezing down the ability of industrial polluters to pollute over time. And I don't think people really understand that. They think they can pollute as much as they want and just buy it off with offsets. And that's not really true. In California, it's, I don't think it's the same in each state. There's not like California. a federal policy for that, right? Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. Linwood, how does that affect what, what trees you can and can't and can't harvest? I know you, the timber harvest last time we were talking about this as a lo- tree, as the logs, the truck was going out and there were some good sized trees and some smaller trees. And how do you, how do you balance that as a forester deciding what to take and what to leave? <laughs> Uh, how long? How, I told you I was going to give you some tough questions. No, today, no, no, right? no. I, I'm just curious how long the show is. You know, how much, how much time do you <laughs> well, have here? Hey, know? as long as the conversation interesting, I let it run. You, I don't know. You see, we're this is audio you can't see, but I'm starting to roll my sleeves up. You know, I'm getting ready to get into the weeds here with you. Uh, but that's all right. We're I'm ready for it. So, I I I, I want to go back to one thing you that was that was said. You talked about the. Uh, talking with, uh, you know, Joaquin and, uh, and then you realize how complicated some of this stuff really is. And I remember I had a, uh, my old boss used to say, you know, Hey, it's not rocket science. You know, it's pretty straightforward. And, you know, my counter was actually, you know, you're right. It's not rocket science. It's a lot more complicated than that because, you know, when you, you know, you know, designing a, a rocket to take off, you do the same thing over and over again, and you expect the same, you know, result. It's going to happen. Uh, whereas, you know, you're dealing with so many unknowns out in the forest. You know, you have the climate conditions, you have the rain, you have, uh, you know, uh, global warming. There's so many things that are going on out there. You have, uh, you know, pests. You have uh, uh, bears, insects, things like that that impact the way. Uh, trees, trees grow. So there's there's a lot of, a lot of complex things you have to take into account when you're out there. So to get back to your your question, uh, as as Kathy said, most of this forest has been cut over once, twice, uh, some cases even even more than that under different type of regimes. But the the end result has always been, you know, developing more of a most of the time is more of a an even aged forest. And what we're trying to do is uh, create more of an uneven aged forest. Um, we want to see, uh, in my mind, at least four, if not five, different age classes out there. In other words, so you have a you have large diameter trees, you have you know really big trees that you're just, that are going to be left to grow in perpetuity. You know, you have a medium sized trees, some smaller diameter trees, and then the younger trees coming up uh, underneath that. And the the trick is to create enough of an opening so your smaller trees can get developed and and be nurtured along the along that uh, time frame to one day be a a merchantable tree or a larger diameter tree or in some cases you know trees that you know we would we would never harvest and there's a lot of thought that goes into. Uh, you know, which trees you're going to take. I I always thought it was ironic that the most important job in the woods is often given to the least experienced worker. And that is the guy that's walking around with the paint gun, 
making the decision on whether that tree stays or that tree goes. And in my mind, you know, that takes years of experience to have a feeling for how the trees you leave respond to the trees that you take. And um, it's, uh, and it's not always how you expect. I mean, <clears throat> I was out marking trees over the weekend. And I mean, this is an area that I, I had harvested in two times before. This is the third time I'm going in there. And I'm starting to kick myself. I'm like, boy, I really shouldn't have left that tree last time. I've, I'm seeing a lot of problems out here that I did not anticipate. And I'm, I'm still learning. You know, I've been doing this for you know, 30 some odd years and I still learn in the woods. There's still something that the woods have to teach me. And I think that's the approach every forester should take when they go out in the woods is the ability to learn all the time from what you're doing and make those adjustments and, and change as you go forward. So do you feel that the, that the movement or progression in schooling at Cal Poly Humboldt and other places that that is that part of the education relationship to the forest? Are, are we coming out with a generation of folks with a new way uh, of thinking about the, not only the responsibility of managing the larger forest, but these decisions like this? I'm, I've been real impressed. I mean, we, you know, both Joaquin and Travis came from Humboldt and I've been real impressed with these guys coming out of school, the knowledge they have and their, and their philosophy. And so I can really only speak to the folks that I have worked with personally. Mm -hmm. And uh, what I have seen is uh, very forward-thinking individuals. Um, you know, I attended a university in the Southeast where everything was totally different. You know, it was a different mindset. It was a different type of forestry than what we're dealing with out here and, uh, you know, the Pacific Northwest, in particular, the Redwood region. And, you know, the professors I've talked to and the students that I have a personal uh, knowledge of uh, all seem to be very forward thinking. And uh, at the same time, they still they're grounded in the science of forestry and what happens after you leave school is you start to learn the art of forestry and that only comes with experience. And I think if they're coming out of school with a solid base in the science and they have a good philosophy, uh, moving forward, I I've seen excellent young, young foresters coming on and it gives me a lot of hope. And I only wish there were more of them because it is a, it is a solid profession. I mean, I've been able to do this for 30 years and I've been very happy uh, in the career I've chosen. And uh, I see more and more jobs available for foresters because the amount of the amount of work it takes to get the harvest plan approved gets to be more and more. And it takes a lot of manpower to do it. And there's a lot of jobs out there. So if anybody is like sitting on the fence going, you know, boy, I wonder what I want to do with my career. You know, <laughs> hey, it's an opportunity to, you know, <clears throat> the, the best, let me refer to this, let me change this. The worst day in the woods is always better than the best day in the office. I can't wait till that becomes my office for for a week or so with 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 the with the event. Yeah, I think Joaquin said every person in his class had a job before before they 
before they left school. If you allow me to like step out a little bit beyond the riffy borders, which I know that is more than enough for the two of you and everyone to focus on. Um, and I'd like to, to, for the listeners to just get um, a little history lesson, which I hope Richard was being able, was going to be able to tell, which is not here. They'll have to join the campfire for Richard's story, but um, it's always worthwhile. You know, I grew up, it's worthwhile. It, ramble on. We'll play the Led Zeppelin song before he <laughs> before he does. That'll be the intro instead of going to California. By the way, going to California's intro to my podcast. You guys will get to hear. But as a kid, you know, uh, growing up in the Central Valley and then in, in in Sebastopol, we'd come up to Fort Bragg and you'd get to visit the mills and see that stuff going on and seeing the big trees. And then I went up to Humboldt State, so I was there during Redwood Summer. So it's been on the around me me growing up, right and um, I remember being maybe 19 or 20 when uh, Julia Butterfly was up in the tree and there was that protest of environmentalists versus loggers, which I was kind of scratching my head because it, it seemed to me to go hand in hand that you would want to have local control of, of, of this timber, which is your jobs. And so that, you know, just being the person I am kind of wondering why are these, con these conflicts and I think there's less of that now, but that's, there's less there's less logging. So I don't know if that's changed. And and I guess I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about the history of the legacy logging, and then speak to without naming. Is there a movement to um, think more long term with the larger timber companies because not everyone can buy fifty thousand acres and form a nonprofit and sell carbon credits? Like, is there? And in terms of being uh, working with indigenous communities and thinking, uh, bringing science in with uh, fire resilience, like, so back us up a little bit, like, how do we get into this mess? And then what is going on now? And, and are you are you hopeful uh, for what you're seeing? You, you know, I'll start and then Linwood, you probably have a opinion about this, too. Um, back then, corporations were really in a profit-taking mode. And the trees were here for the taking, and they could take as much as they want, essentially. And it was that, that movement where they were beginning to be more visible, that people started to think about what was really happening. And because the redwood tree was so iconic, I think it really motivated a generation to really say, wait a minute, we're not going to let all these get cut. Except for Ronald Reagan, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The good old days, some people would say, maybe. Um, but, but, that, but it really was centered in redwood forests. And a lot of the iconic you know, the iconic trees you see in Julia Butterfly, it was in Redwood Country that that we that all that movement really happened. That and Pacific, remember Pacific Lumber Company, if you can remember way back then, they really had a legacy here in Humboldt, a huge landowner. And um and it was about um taking care of the forest and taking care of the people. And when Maxam came in and bought Pacific Lumber Company, there was this dynamic change in who we perceived the owner of our timberlands were. 
And that created, lit a fire under a lot of people. All of a sudden, we had a corporate raider come in and take over this small fam, what we considered family operation. It was still huge, Pacific Lumber Company was, but that's when a lot of that happened, was when that ownership change. And at the time, uh, Refi really came to be, nobody was really thinking about taking care of the land and cutting trees. People were in one camp or the other. They were cutting trees, but there was this short-term shareholder profit mentality. And that really gave us the opportunity to come on the scene as a unique uh, organization who was going to take the long-term view and really think about the forest over many generations and not just the next quarter. And that was really an exciting time. Since that time, I will say that the thinking that we had about restorative forestry and and um, your relationship to the community and whether or not you these forests should be subject to shareholder return requirements, that has changed a lot. All of a sudden, after Refi, our little community group, um, the Conservation Fund and Nature Conservancy and Save the Redwoods League are all thinking that part of their role now is forestry. There was a time when they were just doing preservation. And so communities got a little bit worried about nonprofits being the solution because they came in and stopped cutting. And that was an endanger to the jobs. And so still we had this unique role, right? We're here to make good quality forests and hold the jobs. Then sustainability came became an issue, and now you're seeing the for profits um, really do more certification, uh, sustainable harvest certification. And so I think that the there there has been a corner turn on how hard these forests are being hit, um, and and keeping a longer view on forest health. Um, and we are seeing some companies get out of the forest industry as this <clears throat> as this longer term view uh, takes hold. But and new players come on who are willing to have a longer term view of forest health and forest management. Linwood, you might have something to add to that. Well, a few things. Um, one is I really appreciate your comment about the old Pacific Lumber because they were a mm. a family owned business. They were tied to the local community. And um, I actually had the pleasure of one of my uh, clients that I worked for during, you know, my, more of my consulting days uh, used to be the uh, old treasurer for Pacific Lumber back in those days. And he, and, you know, you mentioned, mentioned Reagan, he was actually the secretary of resources when Reagan was governor. And he had a very nice view, long-term view of how forests should be managed. And his family property, which had been in their family since the late 1800s, uh, was just an amazing property to to work on. Uh, <clears throat> I got lots of great great quotes from Sam. I'll save them for the campfire. So that's a teaser. You know, you got to come to the event. You got to sit around the campfire and and ask me about Norm Livermore, and then I'll uh, I'll fill you know some good quotes for that. But, you know, they I think it was a different era because there were family owned companies back then. Colin, Collins Pines comes to mind as one. Uh, Soper Wheeler, to some extent, also. 
Um, but then there was that shift in the in the 80s when uh, more of the corporations came in and, uh, you know, the, the philosophy definitely changed. And that really kind of stirred stirred things up. Plus, there was a shift in the local community as well. Uh, you know, a lot of these back to lander folks who were here in the 60s and, and 70s, they were, you know, they were fine just keeping to themselves, you know, out in the woods and doing what they doing what they did and building their own little form of communities. And as their kids grew up and and uh, they became older and they started to get more involved and, in, you know, what was going on in the community around them. That's about the time a lot of this was really, uh, really happening with the increase of increase of harvest and uh, and, you know, seeing some of the impacts downstream from uh, from what was going on. Um, Linwood, could you sorry to interrupt, but I'm hoping you could uh, share what R- Richard's story was. Not his story, but but in terms of the, the historical accuracy of where the tax law was changed, where landowners were taxed on assets. So trees were assets. They were wealth that they had that it, the way I understood it is if you had whatever, $5 million in timber on your property, you're being taxed on that unless you cut it. And so there was this big push to cut it. Can you help? understand what that was and, and, and the accuracy of that and how that impacted the logging during that, that, that window. Yeah, that, of time. that was the old ad valorem tax laws. And basically you were taxed on your standing timber as if it was an asset to be, to be sold. And uh, if you harvested uh, a certain percentage, and I can't remember what that number is off the top of my head, then it was taken off the tax rolls. So it was actually a tax incentive to log more from your property. And, um, you know, uh, again, I don't want to keep talking about old old clients, but uh, there were a couple of, of folks that I had worked with that were, you know, practicing this type of long-term uneven age sustainable management, and they realized that was killing them. You know, they were getting taxed for doing what's basically good forestry. And uh, how would the government have known? How would they have known what was standing? They, they couldn't go and take pictures and uh, just by acreage or, or how would how would you? They have no, they, they you would go out and do timber inventories. And if uh, if they did, if they determined that your stand was of uh, mature age or mar- uh, merchantable age. And uh, then you had to either harvest it or you were being taxed on it. How did that come about? That's horrible. That would be like saying, oh, look at all the salmon, the salmon in the river. We better catch this mini or. Well, you're right. It, it, how how is know, that a I, thing? I, I would have to go talk to someone else about how it came about because I came onto the scene after it was already changed. And, uh, you know, the, the landowners who were, you know, wanting to. Uh, grow bigger trees, grow older forests, and manage them. Still harvest trees, but manage them in that way. Uh, we're getting penalized for it, and so there was a big push in the early early mid seventies to uh, change those tax rules. And so now now they have what's known as the yield tax. So when you harvest trees, you are taxed on what you harvest, uh, rather than being taxed on uh, what you have standing on your property. And that's a much fairer system because if you, you know, if you're not not harvesting trees, then you're not taxed on, uh, you know, that standing trees. But if you harvest 
you know, a, a lot of wood, then you are taxed proportionally to, uh, you know, what you, what you harvest. And didn't, didn't the, that ma- that period of time coincide with some of the biggest rains in California history as well, right? I remember the stories are reading the books of the, the dams that had been built on these creeks that then just bust loose and all the trees going downstream. And well, I'm sure that's happened more than most once, of that but. logging was, you know, pre mechanical, you know, and so that was done in the, like the 1800s. Uh, and yeah, that's, <laughs> it still boggles my mind. You know, I had the pleasure of, of walking in the woods one day with a guy, a gentleman named uh, uh, Francis Jackson, who wrote the book called big river was damned. And it, uh, you know, explains how that was done. And he, he had researched and actually found all these old check dams out in the woods. And, uh, you know, he took us to some of the remnants of it. And I've actually, you know, found some myself, uh, you know, based on his book and where they were at and, uh, you know, uh, on a client's property and, and, and found one of these structures. But the biggest, the biggest impact was, you know, what I think what you're referring to is the post-war boom, the, the, building boom of the uh the 50s late 40s and 50s at the same time the caterpillar tractors were getting involved and that's when a lot of that road building up the bottom of the creeks uh you would uh rather than you know put in a culvert to cross a creek you just fill it in with dirt and then when those winter rains came and we had those big rains of the late 50s. And so that's, you know, that's what happened when the, you know, the Caterpillar tractors came in after the post-war building boom. And and particularly in our region, because, um, you know, Doug fir was such a high commodity and, you know, for plywood and for building materials. And uh, now those areas, as you have, you know, rightfully mentioned, you know, all this really steep ground that was not accessible for, you know, the oxen logging was now available. They just built roads everywhere. And, uh, like I said, they, you know, rather than put in culverts and bridges, they just filled in the creeks. And then when those rains came, it just washed, uh, washed all that sediment down. So it was, it was definitely the double, double whammy of, uh, caterpillar logging and those heavy storm events events of the 50s and uh early 60s and 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 thus the efforts to to decommission roads and the sediment that had to have happened in the eel river i mean set back eons of the damage that was done right to undo something like that i mean is 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 pretty massive if you ever moved a couple yards into the wheelbarrow of sand from your yard <laughs> And you could imagine the, the scope and magnitude of, of whole. Well, the thing rivers. is, you know, we're, we are still living with that legacy because a lot of these roads are very, very inaccessible. And, you know, you can't get down there and, and fix some of this stuff. And the areas that we can get to, we're fixing. And other areas, it's going to continue, you know, to basically, you know, bleed into the system until, uh, you know, it's, it's found its way back to its natural channel. And that's the, <clears throat> that's actually one of the one of the huge issues we have out there and it's called uh uh you know diversions or having the the roads be what they call hydrologically connected we want to disconnect we want to hydrologically disconnect the road system uh what will happen is you know a creek will come down it'll hit a road 
because of the way the old crossing was put in, uh, it no longer stays in its original channel, but it now starts running down the road, uh, creates a gully, and then dives off the hillside somewhere and starts, you know, running down, you know, an area that was never meant to hold a creek. And now it's just a, a constant, you know, gullying effect, you know, for sometimes, you know, hundreds of yards or longer. Yeah, it happens very quickly, you know, as you know, I mentioned growing up in the area, but then also been a mountain biker since since the 80s, you know, and seen the development of trail design as well as road where it used to just have after you'd have these roads that were flat and then they build these really steep water bars. So whether it's a truck or a motorcycle or, or a bicycle to break one of those during a storm, uh, you could see how quickly water um, does damage to to the to those surfaces um you know i'll get back up kind of connect it to the cycling event here that we have coming up which which we're excited about which is the the value of recreation and being out and connected to the land because um you know in this area for example the open space district has served an important role um, but for their first round on the tax measures they were um you know preserving this land that couldn't be developed between Tamales and Sebastopol and Sebastopol and San Rosa, et cetera, but no one could go there. So under their tax, their next tax round to vote for that, a lot of the, the feedback was we'd, we'd like to have access to this land that that's being protected. And I think that's essential. Um, you know, the parks system that we have is, is incredibly over, overused and under and underfunded. So to build out partnerships with private landowners to get out and use them um, is really exciting. And, you know, I want you guys to talk about, you know, this is one of the founding principles that for you guys is the um, ecology, economy, social equity, and as well as the mission to, you know, to get people out and the communities involved in that. So, you know, a couple of years ago, Joaquin and Elijah, uh, Eli looked, you know, connected to me. So what is the interest in getting people out of the land and what do you want them to know about this? So we're going to have maybe, you know, a couple hundred people out there. Like what is, you know, what, what's the value in this, uh, and, and, and benefit. So I'll start Linwood. You might want to add something afterwards. The, those kinds of recon, that kind of reconnection with community and the forest around it is really important to us. How that's done is also important to us because we're trying to balance uh, risk with benefit from community. And so part of what we think about is how do we build the responsibility of the public to take care of this as their own asset? Um, and we have been a little slow to get in this. We've been working on Native American partnerships and Native American use of the land but we've been a little slow to get into it. And I think one of the things that has made us cautious is that um, illegal grow situation that had been going on for the last, I don't know, 10 years in particular, probably longer than that. But the encroachment of those grows on our property made us reticent to just open our properties. It was could have been dangerous for people. Um, we already had people encroaching. Uh, that created a little bit of a challenge. I think for us, the best of all worlds is to find ways to organize people to come on the property. And so that it's not an individual 
activity as much as it's a group activity. We've been bringing schools out. We have brought elementary schools out. We've brought uh, Cranoff School out, um, the furniture making school out. <clears throat> we have the hopper. And we think that those kinds of activities are the ones that we can integrate most easily with having an active timber operation also on our property. Um, the other thing we like to think about is how do we bring residents out and create this reconnection and responsibility through them helping us do things on the property. We've had a lot of volunteers who've been willing to go out and do the Sudden Oak death testing blitz and uh, removal of non-native species. Um, that we have public come out and walk our THPs with us before they're approved so that they can see what we're doing and learn about the art of forestry. I like that, Linwood, the art of forestry. So we are trying to create opportunities to get people out on the property and can visualize more and more of that over time, but it takes resources to make sure that we can do that responsibly. Yeah. Yeah, the risk, the risk benefit, that's an important piece to that. Well, yeah. I was just going to say from, from my is, point of view, I think it's important for the general public to realize what it, what it means to see and be on a working forest. Uh, we can, uh, I, I think a lot of times people think the solution is to lock things up, preserve it and don't do anything and let nature uh, heal it. And the situation we have on the ground was not caused by nature. It was caused by man. And man has, you know, through past practices, caused some real issues out there. And um, I think there are things that, that we can do to uh, help it along, assist it, kind of get it on a, a better, better starting, uh, get it to a better starting place than, than where we are right now. Um, because we've, we've seen what happens, especially on some forest service property where they basically have given up on management and then a fire comes through and they lose everything. And, uh, we have not had a major fire on our property in over 40 years. And it's not a matter of if it's when, and at this point, we've got a lot of work to do to improve the uh, resiliency of, of that forest. Um, and I think it's important for people to, uh, to see that you can have a working forest and still have a forest. I mean, that's, that's what we want. You know, I mean, we don't we call it a working forest because that's that's our goal is we, we want to main maintain that and i i know i raise a lot of eyebrows uh, eyebrows sometimes when you know people say ask me what i do and i say uh i oversee the cutting down of redwoods and right away people are like oh, you know you're cutting down these you know giant trees i said no no that's not what we do you know we're thinning these redwood clumps, we're allowing the bigger trees uh, room to grow. And it, it's nice to get people on the ground and show them that, uh, you know, when they read in the paper that there's a you know, harvest plan to, you know, cut down redwoods, that it's, 
it's not all the same. There's a lot of nuance. There's a lot of variation in what goes on out in the woods. And any opportunity that we have to get people out and uh, not only educate them, but also educate us on, you know, the public's perception. And there have been times, you know, again, I've, I've said this before, you know, y- you always you always learn when you're out in the woods. And I've done field trips many, many times, especially with, uh, you know, folks that are very, very interested in, uh, in forest and forest preservation. And I've learned, learned things from them as I hope that uh, they have also learned from us. Yeah. yeah, it's complicated. You know, there, myself included, and many others would say, you know, don't, don't cut, protect, but yet I want to go to Friedman Brothers this afternoon and I want to get the redwood I need for my project. Uh, I bought some pieces of plywood. One of them came from China and the veneer came from Taiwan that I got. And so it, it is complicated and there are things that we need. And, you know, the fact that you guys are looking looking long term and you're learning is, is fantastic. Bringing in recreation, I think, um, you know, we also have a lease with Mendocino Redwood Company where we've been building trails and uh, similar with the, with the cannabis cultivation. It's like, OK, they sold half their land to state parks. We had previously had a lease with Louisiana Pacific. I was like, well, people are going to be there. They're going to poach. They're going to sneak in. They're going to ride. They're going to try and grow cannabis. We're riding bikes and we're out there and we're going to steward the land. And so I think bringing cyclists out there is a huge win. I think it's a really responsible group that's super open to what's going on. I know last year, Mark Welters came and spent the night and his mind was blown to see and to talk with this group of people to catch the sunset on the beach. Um, so we're really looking forward to doing it again. And, um, you know, thank you so much for your partnership. Those who have managed to listen to this podcast, uh, don't, don't not come. Uh, well, we're all sold out. So hopefully you're already coming in. We're, we're filled up. But when you do go, don't just party on the beach after the ride. Come and join the Fireside Chat where you can ask Linwood about, who are they supposed to ask you about, Linwood? Norm. Norm. Livermore. Okay. And then Richard, just ask Richard about anything. <laughs> we are so fortunate to have, you know, Richard involved with the organization because, you know, he lives up there in Whale Gulch, which is on the you know, northern edge of the property. And, you know, he's probably spent as much time out there as, you know, many of the, you know, older foresters who, you know, stomped around those woods for decades. And uh, he, and he remembers, he remembers. Yeah, that's why um, I guess I'm going to have to have a podcast dedicated just to the Richard Geinger report. That's going to have to come up again. He can fill one of his very own All right. podcasts. And so before we shove off, I mean, if people want to learn more and get involved, uh, where do they go? What should they do? Well, definitely they could go to the refi, RFFI.org our website. There's lots of information on there. And then we have a second red website that's called you saw redwood forest company and that's really the story about what's going on on the forest you can get to that either place but it's a little more concentrated on the you saw redwood forest company dot or dot com site did i dot org they'll get i always the, get those confused google will get google Refi. will get them there google will get them there and refi.org will get them there as well that's right for sure for sure Lots of good information there. Hey, I want to just end with one um, 
we talk a lot about redwoods and people like to talk about redwoods and there's a lot of affinity toward redwoods but in our region we have a lot of mixed conifer and fir forest land and we we don't talk very much about the challenge it is going to be to take what was cut over in the 70s the 60s uh, and rehabilitate that land back into productivity instead of the timber box and um and it is going to be a huge job and i think that was one of the things that has really struck us about usol is the rehabilitation into productivity um of our uh, of the east side of the drier douglas fir and how important that is to the t house building um in general in california which we all we know we need to do but i think that there's a there's a story there about bringing those lands back into productivity that we should be talking about as well as the redwoods linwood is any closing statement something we miss here any nuggets before we shove off look forward to seeing folks at the uh at Esau Beach, and uh, I, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna fill in for Joaquin and be the be the tail end guy. So if you're uh, if you're lagging behind and I start pushing you from the back, it means uh, there's nobody behind you. So keep keep moving. Fan fantastic. We'll look forward to seeing you out there. And again, th thanks for your time. Alrighty. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Miguel. Richard, thank you so much for joining the conversation. Uh, so for the listeners, so that they know, we're talking with Richard Ginger, uh, and we're going to be weaving this in with the conversation that we had with Linwood and Kathy. So if they're talking about Richard in the third person, we're going to be listening as if you are here live. So thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks uh, for... I've been distracted by a friend who's at the end of life, and I, I was headed over there, and I spaced out today, and luckily I was able to rejoin. Yeah, well, it's great having you. So, Richard, anyways, the idea for me of doing this uh, on my podcast platform is that I've so much enjoyed the fireside chats, and this last year, or during COVID, I started a podcast related to to cycling, and not just about biking, but the exceptional people in the community that 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 is formed uh, around doing things that we love. And I met you a few years ago uh, at the USOL event and uh, thought that if we could save the flavor and some of the stories of a fireside chat, then then let's make time for a podcast. That's good, that's good. Um, so I was hoping that you could fill in a little bit. Like, I know you've been involved with Riffy since the founding, the Redwood Forest Foundation as well as other things, but give us a, give us a little origin uh, genesis story of, of Riffy. Okay. Um, uh, sort of the genesis for me personally uh, started in 1979 when uh, a friend and I uh, got a contract to do stream surveys in uh, South Fork Eel River and the coastal uh, watersheds and uh, um, the Matoll. And uh, during the work that we did, it was mostly focused on finding log jams to modify or remove. And uh, we uh, ended up uh, modifying a log jam in Anderson Creek 
in the use, which is now in the Utah Redwood Forest, of a log jam that was about um, uh, 100 yards long. And uh, during that time, uh, Georgia Pacific uh, was angling to purchase the Andersonia lands. The Andersonia lands uh, originally went from Bear Harbor on the coast over to the South Fork Hill River across from Old Piercy. There's a whole story about uh, the railroad line, and it didn't, uh, 1906 earthquakes, the death of the mill owner, and it never really was uh, fully logged until after World War II. But we, uh, uh, around the campfire in our restoration camp, uh, went to appeal to the Andersonia um, uh, heiresses. There were three older women uh, to not uh, sell the land to Georgia Pacific, but to keep it uh, and evaluate it and keep it in the community. This is sort of a precursor notion, but it was an underlying current that was uh, what uh, formed Redwood Forest Foundation Incorporated uh, some years later, uh, which is pretty exciting. Unfortunately, the sale to Georgia Pacific did go through, but ironically, the current um, Redwood Forest Foundation Incorporated, you saw Redwood Forest, is uh, essentially the same uh, area that was the Georgia Pacific USAL unit, about 50,000 acres in northwest uh, Mendocino County. So Ruffy was formed in the 90s, I believe. Uh, and, uh, boy, it was so exciting because here was another organization that was actually uh, uh, eager to make um, uh, true uh, the establishment of a community forest and community forest in general, whereby um, depleted forest lands, and that fits the de description of almost all the forest land in Northern California, would be purchased and brought back to productivity. And when it became um, uh, profitable, it was like uh, re recovered, the, the benefits from uh, that recovery and the forestry would... Um, go to benefits of surrounding communities, not go like Georgia Pacific, uh, Pacific Lumber, uh, Louisiana Pacific, to stakeholders in some distant part of the United States. So that was, uh, and that happened uh, uh, before I was directly involved with Ruffy. I sent uh, maps and whatnot and encouragement to Mika Wawona, who was on the original Ruffy board, saying, you saw, you saw, you saw. <laughs> and uh, son of a gun, if it all didn't come to pass, that Ruffy in 2007 acquired that 50,000 acres. And that, that was... Uh, yeah. That's great synchronicity. Yeah, I'm looking at the map right now as, as you're speaking. So, uh, I mean, I've gotten to know the area the quite, quite well. And, and Anderson, Anderson Creek is the furthermost north creek in the in the riffy property uh and the northern part of the sinkion well in the where the intertribal sinkion wilderness and the sinkion wilderness is uh meets up with and it's close to where you live you're up in uh whitethorn area is that right four corners whale gulch west okay. of whitethorn in mendocino county and yep. and, the, um, and the conditions of the Anderson creek one of the foremost coho refugia streams in the south fork Hill river which itself is a refugia for endangered coho salmon. And the Anderson Creek uh, uh, 
parallels the Usal Road for a long ways, and there's coho salmon that come all the way up the Eel River and the South Fork Eel River and up Anderson Creek uh, about 100 yards or so from the Usal Road, and that's the ridge that is above Bear Harbor. The railroad that was put through actually went up an incline uh, from Bear Harbor area and down Anderson Creek where it joined Indian Creek and went to uh, what was called Andersonia across from Piercy. That's a whole saga on its own. But uh, the, it's, it's really, it's, that's a focus for me, is the incredible value of the fisheries uh, in the Usal Redwood Forest in general and in the Indian Creek, Usal Creek's uh, watersheds in particular. And how, how much have you seen uh, the recovery uh, of the coho? I noticed that, I mean, they've worked on Bear Creek and on Stanley Creek, massive uh, road decommissioning on Andersonia Creek and on Soldier That's Creek. Right. One of the hikes of the, of the for the Usal Hopper event, which is so cool, is you get people out the next day to go hike and to see either pre or post timber harvest. And in this case, we saw a road decommissioning and where logs were placed in to to bring uh, steelhead up into Soldier Creek. Yeah, that's that, those are two major uh, restoration uh, categories, so to speak, or focuses. And uh, just um, last weekend, uh, the Coho Confab, uh, uh, sponsored by the Salmonia Restoration Federation, had their 24th annual Coho Confab uh, and some of the major tours there were what you were talking about for both Usall Creek and Anderson Creek. And it was exciting uh, uh, taking people into Anderson Creek. And Anderson Creek, uh, Indian Creek, which includes Anderson Creek, is the third highest priority out of 29 uh, areas of the South Fork Hill River for restoration. Uh, which is a, a really big deal. And Anderson Creek, uh, just this last Christmas, my original survey partner from 1979, who's an avid um, uh, outdoors person, uh, that doesn't quite get everything that he's about, but he uh, took a video on Christmas Day of this past year of 14 spawning coho in this Anderson Creek stream right up uh, close to Anderson, excuse me, to Usall. Uh, road ridge just over bear harbor it's pretty incredible yeah tell me a little bit so we, i talked a little bit to linwood about this you know the importance of the stream restoration and the impact you know humans have been altering our environment forever usually to the the detriment of it not always but now playing a role to to improve and to undo starting back in the in the late 70s and here we are 50 years later that, that what's that the feeling that have been able to bring back or to you know revitalize an area i mean that's got to be got to be an amazing feeling well it's a uh, very important in multiple layers uh, for me personally and for many other people it's been uh uh spiritually uh one end of the of the spectrum and on the other end uh some, uh, what do you call that, right livelihood, you know, uh, accrues to direct economic benefit. A lot of the restoration work, uh, very important. Um, there's only so much that can be accomplished with volunteers given the incredible scale of the damage. For instance, the Stanley Creek uh, 
uh, between four and six million dollars just to correct in the Stanley Creek uh, project uh, in seven stages the destruction of the hydrology and the terrain and the erosion caused by the road system, just the road system. And this is in a, a planning watershed in Stanley Creek of around uh, uh, five or six thousand acres, and almost all of the watersheds in the South Fork Eel River were subjected to that kind of damage by the tractor logging that happened after World War II. Yeah, and one of the things of getting people involved and, and, and helping to raise some funds for, for Riffy, you know, I'm, I'm looking at their annual report, you know, that the gifts and contributions, yeah. and again, it's not just volunteerism, has has helped remove 150,000 cubic yards, which they equate to 11,000 uh, truckloads, you know, and, and that's likely just within that, that, that watershed area. So it's great to be able to bring people out to the land and connect them and, and, and have them be part of, of this work that you guys are doing. Uh, yeah, it, it's, it, it, uh, it's inspiring and it's a direct uh, uh, a benefit to have people, the outreach for people to be involved with this because it is uh, a community effort, whether you look at the community just in Northwest Mendocino County or the Redwood region or all of California uh, to repair the damage and recover uh, some of these resources, the forest and the watersheds, the fisheries and the timber that are, are so vital in our future, and that includes uh, uh, dealing with climate change and carbon sequestration. It really needs to be a reboot of how people uh, treat the land and part of getting a, a, a real conservation ethic, which has been sorely missing uh, North America for several yeah. hundred years. Tell me, t tell me a little bit about... Um you know, and I understand a little bit, you know, the culture and history of Mendocino and Humboldt County, having lived in Sonoma and also in Humboldt and with family in, in Mendocino and, and looking for economy. I mean, people want to live there and you yourself moved there in the 70s, you know, you know, back to the land and uh, your right. family and kids grew up there. And, you know, then the reality of setting in, you know, for work and, and traditionally it's been, you know, natives. The indigenous community with with the white settlers has primarily been timber and fishing, uh, a lot of cannabis, and that's been in fluctuation. H has this effort in in restoration and involvement is it creating jobs in and of itself that's kind of helped to you know add to uh, uh, an economy that 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 has struggled to to be able to sustain people and families? Yeah, it is. It's a touch and go all the time. Um, there is a restoration economy, I think, uh, especially given all the funds that are available now in terms of uh, fire uh, for uh, forest management to deal with different fire aspects. In a way, there's more uh, um, potential than ever. The thing is, the, the language in a lot of these grants and all that talk about not just fire, but watershed uh, recovery. And uh, but fire is drawing the funds, and it's so important to have that restoration effort uh, uh, relative to fire. And there's lots, lots of slogans around fire resiliency and healthy forest to have it include actual um, recovery of the watersheds themselves. Uh, so it's comprehensive, and there's standards set for recovery efforts, whether it's uh, for the forest uh, or for the watersheds. There's so much to be done. I mean, you mentioned that the, the huge volume of soil that was taken off the hillsides and actually directly put in 
uh, to streams. Uh, there were landings in streams and actually uh, little, uh, impacts from dra dragging logs down uh, the streams. It's like uh, there's a lot of erosion that's happened that's going to happen, but there's so much more that can be treated. And uh, it is a very big component uh, for economy and in places, uh, especially like the Matol Valley, where uh, the Matol Restoration Council combined with the Matol Salmon Group's efforts is a major employer uh, of people in the Matol Valley. And it's really important uh, in Northwest Mendocino County for sure. Yeah, and it, it's 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 complicated as you mentioned. You know, the 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 restoration work and it's all connected. The the fire prevention. We have issues w with with drought, and you know, maybe the impact of 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 agriculture. And we have, um, you know, the the legacy of of the roads, and it, it it's complicated with all these. I have been reading uh, your report, the digging in, which is I enjoy reading. Uh, getting connected with other things going on uh, out there. And there seems to be quite a bit of effort of local folks um, educating themselves and, and doing their best for fire um, suppression or fire prevention. It, it's a big, it's a big, it's a big task though. And um, do you see that what Riffy's doing and, and is kind of started a, a movement that's, that's in, in the direction that we need to go? Uh, I, yes, I do, obviously. I, I, I'm, uh, in full disclosure, I'm, I'm interconnected enough to be uh, have a prejudicial opinion <laughs> on that. <laughs> you know, like Ruffy uh, is and, and should be more widely known as a model for forest watershed uh, recovery, including, you know, the economic, environmental, and social equity uh, that's one of the main precepts of Ruffy is, is to reconnect surrounding communities of the forest for generations going forward, right? That's what, uh, the indigenous people had connections to the land for generations, and most of the, the settler uh, impacts, uh, not to m mention the uh, horrific treatment of Indian people, uh, by those settlers, but uh, uh, the uh, interest in the settlers was uh, generally um, extraction uh, of anything that could be a monetary benefit uh, to, the, it turns out, the way it worked was very few people would have companies or own land, whether it's the Central Valley or the North Coast, uh, and employ people. Um, six days a week, 12 hours a day, and, and uh, getting uh, all of that uh, valuable material to market, you know. And it was it was through the 50s. There, there was no understanding or response to the connection between the health of the fisheries and the impacts of logging. It wasn't until uh, yeah. several years ago that there was actually no-cut buffers on important salmon uh, in larger streams. Uh, right. um, yeah, uh, you mentioned the, the, the spiritual satisfaction, and, and, and I think that's important to, to, to mention, you know, and maybe Linwood didn't say this, but being in the woods and he's going back to someplace the third time to pick some trees, and, and there's a spiritual connection with, with the land, which seems obvious, but yet the Western 
way of being has the, that somehow we are other and what we're doing, the, the earth is separate from us. And, and my hope is that it just, the shift isn't little by little, but it's, but it's massive, you know, and there's not a single thing a person can do or a single uh, piece of the equation that's mo the most important. Uh, I think it's important that everyone's finding ways that, that we're being part of, of, of making the world a better place and the decisions. And, and the best thing is starting local. You know, I admire that you moved out there and then you, you dug in, you know, and your family's dug in and the locals and, and like, you know, it doesn't do any good just to point a finger. Of course, when you stop the detriments being happening, but that connection that everything is, is, is interconnected and, and, and vital and, and even more, more now than ever before, I would say. Yeah, more more critical to actually do it, and, and more difficult because there's more and more people and less and less resource, so to speak. You know, mm -hmm. people coming mm -hmm. in in 1860 or whenever, they had forests that had been growing and becoming incredible forests uh, for thousands of years. Uh, it wasn't like, and, and the way it is now, the model for commercial forest land generally is um, 35 acre clear cuts every 45 years over the whole watershed. Yeah, like a monocrop if you're growing corn out in Kansas. It's, yeah, yeah it's, that's the efficiency way. Whereas, you know, Ruffy's ideal from the beginning was a selection and, and having standards uh, for having a whole variety of sizes of trees and, and trying to grow larger trees. And that's uh, a model that, that needs to be followed, I think, and I think it's hard to get people to change, but that's where roughly the hope is that people will see that here's a forest that has connection with the multiple communities around, whether it's people with small uh, mobile mills, whether it's restoration activities, whether it's a re-connection re, um, with the cultural uh, heritage of these places with Indian people, and with the actual active uh, recovery actions and, and, and go back to that and so that maybe people can be convinced that that's a, a viable model because you're going to have people that are going to depend upon their livelihood and their families and relationships with having a forest that is part of a generation-to-generation -generation, uh, heritage as opposed to um, the very limited uh, industrial approach where you just have a repetitive, entirely economic um, relationship with the forest, even yeah. though industry would say there's consideration given to wildlife and all this, but we need to set up models like Ruffy uh, that will give people hope and a reality of a, a, a changed relationship uh, with a conservation ethic. Yeah, hundred, hundred, hundred percent. Um, you know, and bring for me. I mean, you can get my 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 slant, my perspective on on conservation, environmentalism. You know, having been an educator and and now an event promoter, I don't I don't like that term. I like to be a facilitator of, of adventures, is what I like to consider myself. And I, Good. the form of tourism that that I'd like to instill and, and can continue to bring up to Mendocino and to Humboldt County is this, you know, this experiential being in places where you don't just pop into a hotel and then you're at the, you know, you're, you're connected to local businesses and you're recreating this because there's nothing more 
to make people feel more involved, whether it was early days, people in the Marin Headlands preserving in the Golden Gate National Recreation Area or, or John Muir in Yosemite. You know, when, when you are someplace like it's, it's just a primal, like this is me, this is us and, and this is important. And so I'm really happy uh, to be working with you guys again there. And I want to remind people that Richard's going to be there for our fireside chat. That's right, Richard. I think so. I I, I hope you can. (laughs) You know, there's nothing like sitting around a fire to tell stories. I know it's my, my goal wasn't doing this is to record some things that can last, but there's just something about, uh, settling and, and sitting down. Um, on that note, I was telling, do you, do you have any, uh, any anecdotal, any, any stories for our listeners that that's going to just really, uh, get them excited to come join us that next weekend? Something about, uh, well, there's lots of stories that the use of redwood forest, the continuity was a struggle to protect the coast here, actually, in the Sinkione wilderness, uh, uh, right now, it's protected under either in Sinkyone Wilderness State Park or in Sinkyone State Wilderness or Intertribal Sinkyone Wilderness, uh, and that's all connected to the King Range of Bureau of Land Management. There's there's so many stories uh, of the efforts to protect and respect uh, this area. Um, it's uh, it, once you get started, it's hard to stop. <laughs> <But there's, laughs> yeah, it's good. Uh, Sally Bell Grove. Uh, yeah. It's all tied into all the marshalling, uh, you know, like starting in the 50s and 60s and realizing the damage. And this particular area was one of the focuses uh, of change. And what, what is so special about this forest and these redwoods. I know that this is happening all around the country in conservation moment. What for me, I feel it. I don't know if I can articulate it when I, when I'm into the redwoods and on the coastal area and even, you know, then you change into the, the conifers and the chaparral. What's, what's, what's the feeling that that's so special and unique about it to you or for you? Well, well the connection between salmon rivers and the coast, you know, like the South Fork Eel River is parallel to the coast here. And that whole, you know, like it's uh, maybe, say, 15 miles between the, the refugia, actual South Fork Eel River, and the Pacific Ocean. And the incredible um, recovery uh, uh, capabilities of coastal areas. The, it's really, uh, it's, its ability to the vegetation to recover from heavy impacts, the coastal area, just that connection, that the lifeways connection in, in past times, like all you needed, you know, was to migrate from beside the South Fork Hill River up Indian Creek, Anderson Creek, to Bear Harbor in the ocean, and all the incredible abundance, you know, like the elk, the deer, the bear, the mountain lion, uh, it's incredible, and that is that's all still there, and and uh, can can return to a really uh, incredibly strong force and inspiration for human and uh, wildlife uh, themselves. Yeah, ab- absolutely. The sense of hope that it, it can regenerate, it is regenerating. It, there is still things are 
we're, we're and I, I guess in a simple just say we're not totally screwed like there there is hope for what's going on and, and the redwoods the way they regenerate from being cut you know if people look from above dropping into usall beach that they would not be they would just be amazed and then if they saw the photos uh, at the time when there was the pier going out there and there were no trees on the hillside it would almost be inconceivable that it that it is what it is today yep the recovery of the riparian in Anderson Creek is remarkable. You know, there's trees that are uh, four feet in diameter and better in the riparian area because it was cut early. I just, it's like uh, one of the things that I've been impressed by or hopeful for, uh, you know, the Yurok tribe uh, got 50,000 acres in a similar uh, action. Uh, they got it from a green diamond and uh, you saw that was forest that came from the original larger holding of, of Georgia Pacific. And the tribal leader of the Yurok, they want to have uh, 15,000 acres of that 50,000 acres they got from Green Diamond uh, to be uh, restored into pre-colonial uh, condition. Now, I sure would like to see a similar thing happen uh, on 15,000 acres of uh you saw redwood forest. That's my mm -hmm. personal opinion, <laughs> and mm -hmm. we'll, we'll see uh, how that goes. And Anderson Indian Creek is a, a real strong um, place that uh, could hopefully uh, encourage or inspire that kind of recovery. Yeah. Well, Richard, I really want to thank you, uh, you know, for your time and for your decades uh, of of being a steward and 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 going all, going all in. It it means a lot, and um, I'm looking forward to uh, sitting around the campfire with you. I'll make sure in the notes to let people obviously a link for for Riffy, but also to the Forest and River News, so they can learn more about. That's a good thing. Yeah, and I, I uh, my son is involved. He's not. He's, <laughs> He's, he's 49 years old now. Oh, my goodness. But uh, his generation and younger, uh, they get enthused over over trails of all sorts, you know, uh, including the mountain mountain biking. Uh, that connection is, is really strong with a lot of people as the generations come on. Yeah, it's great. And I'm glad to bring people up there. He and I have been talking about doing, you know, being up at the, you know, Paradise Rail. And like you mentioned, the connection of the North Coast of uh, between here and the Sinkion and the Usal Road, which goes up into uh, the King Range and the Matol River. And uh, it's just, it's beautiful, beautiful country. Uh, and it's at the time of the year that, that I love the most when we're transitioning from summer uh, into fall, we got our first rains, which I hope you guys thoroughly enjoyed. Oh, two inches was common in the showers we had. Uh, uh, the rain was real hard. It's hard to press to call them showers. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's beautiful. It's encouraging, and it kind of you know t tempers the 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 forest fires that that may be coming. So, uh, anyways, thanks a lot for your time and. Uh, overcoming our technical difficulties. I really appreciate it, Richard. Yeah, thank you, Miguel, same. All right, talk to you soon.